You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review's senior editor, Daniel Horowitz. And along with co-host Joe Koss, they break down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. Welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. It is Wednesday, December 21st. I know so many of you can't wait until the weekend, Christmas weekend, New Year's, Hanukkah, all the holidays coming up, and a lot of people traditionally get a week, two weeks off. Here at Conservative Review, we're kind of cheap, so they don't give us off. I'm always working, but hopefully I'll get a day or so here and there. And uh, normally, after December 20th, the world shuts down. And there's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to write about. I'll tell you, I don't have enough minutes in the day to write about, to talk about everything that's going on with the Trump transition, the Islamic attacks throughout the world and Europe. Obviously, our big marquee issues, immigration and the courts, everything going on in the judicial branch, so many of our systemic reforms that we're pushing. You know, we're going to have articles headed into New Year's promoting a relentlessly positive conservative agenda, right? This is something we have failed to really articulate for years. We're always just against the left, but what are we for? And that's why we've been focusing so much on foundational issues, not just the policy issues, but the system of government we we actually desire to keep or restore. And as you well know, anyone who has listened to me or read any of my articles for the last couple of months knows that at the top of that list is the federal judiciary. The courts are destroying our country. The courts pose an imminent threat to our democracy, and they are worse than they've ever been. And I want to kind of go over some of the recent stuff that's been going on in the lower courts that, again, we're pretty much the only ones discussing this. And why, if their courts are not reined in, Nothing that goes on next year in Congress with Trump, in the states that Republicans won, none of it's going to matter. None of it will matter because we live in a judicial oligarchy. And until we understand the proper role for the courts and how to reorient the courts in that direction, nothing else will matter. Before we get to that, I mean, just finishing off some of the stuff we spoke about last week. Needless to say, I am more concerned than ever with the Trump transition. It's not that every last decision has been terrible. Um, You know, a couple appointees were good. But more and more, I'm seeing signs that this is not just a not a conservative uh, administration, but this is the embodiment of everything we hated with Bush 41, Bush 43, and even the Democrats, even worse, even more liberal stuff than the Republicans of the past or GOP establishment. This is a big problem. And like I said, if we don't voice what it means to be a conservative, what is good public policy, what will actually drain the swamp now, no one's going to do it. It's going to take at least several years, like we did with the Bush administration, to get people on the right to start holding their party's leader accountable. And, you know, as it stands now, everyone's just falling in line. I mean, Rex Tillerson the subject of our last two podcasts, the disastrous James Baker, Condi Rice liberal that he picked to head the State Department. 
Tom Cotton, of all people, probably one of the best on foreign policy, he said he's supporting it. Now, if you would get him privately in a room, there's no doubt in my mind, he'll tell you the truth, but everyone wants to fall in line. Who wants to undermine you know, their newly minted party leader as president after eight years of Obama? And this, is, this is the big problem that we're up against. Before we get to the courts, I just want to read down a couple of headlines, a couple of excerpts from articles to demonstrate some of these concerns about Trump, his liberal family members, Reince Priebus, the establishment folks that really are winning the day in terms of the internal disputes within the administration. So you got, um, this is a New York Times article from earlier this week, Trump picked, picked Ryan Zinke, the congressman from Montana, as Secretary of the Interior. Now, you might say, well, who cares about Secretary of Interior? Well, yeah, it's pr- relatively unimportant in terms of the scheme of where the country is going to head, but there is one very important issue. The Interior oversees the Bureau of Land Management. At, at the root of our democracy is property rights, freedom. And the government, especially in the West, the federal government is buying up all the lands. They control the majority of the territory, literally the majority of the physical territory in almost every Western state. Some states as much as 75, 80%, like Utah and, and, and Nevada. So um, he chose Ryan Zinke. The other option that everyone thought he was going to pick was Kathy McMorris Rogers from Washington. Now, both of these dudes are kind of, or I shouldn't say dudes, <laughs> Kathy's a gal, but um, most uh, both of these congressmen are establishment guys. They're not conservative grassroots people. But there was one important distinction as it relates to f- control of federal lands. I'm going to read you this excerpt from an article in, New- in the New York Times. Mr. Trump's choice of Mr. Zinke, who was not on the initial list of potential interior candidates, was driven in part by the enthusiasm of Donald Trump Jr., according to several people with direct knowledge of the decision. A hunter with a professed interest in land issues, the younger Mr. Trump is a member of a sportsman's group, backcountry hunters and anglers, that vigorously criticize Miss McMorris Rogers as a candidate for the Interior Department because of her support for selling off public lands. So the one issue for which she was a conservative on, which is the seminal issue of the Interior Secretary... Trump's own family member allegedly scuttled it and picked a random guy that wasn't even being considered because evidently he's good on keeping federal control of lands. There we go, folks. I'm just telling you, (laughs) this is what we warned about. You know, your connections do matter. And when you're not ideologically um, oriented towards limited government, the special interest will kick in. And this is a perfect example. Let me move on. I won't bore you with this, and I'm going to link to all these articles in the show notes, um, but I'll just you know read you a headline from The Hill. Priebus, Reince Priebus flexes his muscle within Trump Tower. He is winning the day, like we warned last week, and this was before this article came out. You could read it, but I'm just going to go through this briefly. Next, Schumer on Trump's infrastructure program. This is from ABC News. Quote, we think it should be large. He's mentioned a trillion dollars. I told him that sounded good to me. So Schumer's already talking about working with Trump on Porculus. Uh, and, and, and closely related, Mike Huckabee, one of you know Trump's bootlickers from day one, said the most effective way to put people back to work um, on a job is to do infrastructure jobs because it's the one thing you cannot outsource. 
So this is make Keynesian economics great again. Are, are we living in a twilight zone? Eight years ago in January, February, March of 2009, what was the first issue we were dealing with in the Obama presidency? The stimulus, right? The, the notion that you hire a thousand people to dig ditches and a thousand people to fill in the ditches, that that spawns economic growth and actually organically creates jobs. That's voodoo economics. And I thought we repudiated that. I thought that was the very impetus for the rise of the Tea Party. Well, now it's been made cool again. And then I want to close, before we get to the courts, I want to close with this um, article. Newt Gingrich, Trump doesn't want to drain the swamp anymore. Well, I think those those who read my articles and listen to the conservative conscience already know that. But anyway, let me quote. Former Speaker Newt Gingrich, this is from The Hill, said in a new interview that Donald Trump has taken a different tone as president-elect and may be leaving behind his campaign promise to drain the swamp. Gingrich told NPR's Morning Edition that he was told Trump, quote, now says the phrase was cute, meaning draining the swamp, but he doesn't want to use it anymore. Gingrich, who has been a close advisor to Trump, said he likes to drain the swamp because it vividly illustrates the problem because all people in the city who are the alligators are going to hate the swamp being drained. But, you know, he is my leader, and if he decides to drop the swamp and the alligator, I will drop the swamp and the alligator. End quote from New Gingrich. So, hence, you know, all these people have literally embarrassed themselves and, and have become a rear end for Trump. Wherever he goes, they go, just like his rear end. And uh, this is where we must not go. You know, support him in when, when he does good things. But this is my concern, that on a given week, Trump's going to do five liberal things, and he'll do one conservative thing, and then he'll do one just kind of murky thing that's questionable. The media will all focus on that. Then the conservative media will all be defending him. It'll all be about that. And then meanwhile, well, what are we defending? You know, it's only worth defending your side if it's your side and they're fighting for your principles. And meanwhile, people don't realize this. Now, again, you might say, Daniel, let's, let's, uh, you know, let's wait. You know, we don't want to sandbag him early. Let's give him a chance. He was elected. I understand all that. I'm just saying the longer you allow this cancer to spread without administering the chemotherapy and conservatives rising up, there's certainly no incentive for him to move to the right. So there, there you have it, folks. I, I, unfortunately, I don't take pride in being proven right, but I mean, every day we see more of this. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, I mean, like I said a couple of weeks ago, the biggest things we have to hold him accountable for are full repeal of Obamacare and repealing the refugee resettlement and Islamic uh, immigration. And by the way, I need you guys to help support one of our sponsors, FreedomWorks. If you really want to repeal Obamacare, they're one of our few partners that are actually fighting for full repeal of Obamacare. When I say full, as you guys know, that means the insurance coverage mandates. The, the things that actually raise the cost of premiums, eliminate choice and competition. If you want lower premiums, better health care, we got to repeal all of Obamacare. That's why I need you guys to go to www.endobamacare now. It is time to take advantage of this historic opportunity and see how freedom works. And like I said, you can't hope for change with Obamacare. You have to make it happen. You have to force it to happen. So support our folks at FreedomWorks. All righty, we're already 10 minutes in. I didn't even get to the courts. Courts are destroying this country. Um, you know, for quite a long time, we've anointed the courts as the sole and final arbiter of constitutional interpretation of every social issue, of every political issue, right? So the unelected courts 
control things that even King George could not have controlled. Just as a 30,000-foot view, before we get into the specific cases, I just want to give you a quote, and if, you, if you're bored of it by now, then so be it, but you know we can never say it enough. When it comes to the courts, judicial supremacy plus judi- judicial exclusivity plus one-directional precedent plus unelected life tenures plus the living and breathing constitution equals an equation of tyranny even King George himself never envisioned. And what I mean by that is, so the, the, the judiciary is now has exclusive domain over constitutional interpretation. They are supreme. They are the, given the final word. The document they use is a document that is a living and breathing document antithetical to every single constitutional principle. What's an unalienable right, they take out. What is they? What's not? They put in. What's the federal power they give to the states? What's the states they give to the feds? Um, plus one directional stare decisis precedent. So the liberals will come in, take two hundred years of settled case law, and poke a hole in it and say, "Well, we've evolved." And then once they issue that opinion, then that's considered settled law, and even the conservative justices, for the most part, say, "Yeah, you got to go with it." And then plus the fact that they're unelected and they serve life tenure. So there's nothing we can do about them. Like I said, that is a tyranny. King George himself never, ever could have envisioned. It is, it is just, it is, um, it's devastating. You have the courts now throwing out state election laws. You have the courts now redefining gender, sexuality, redefining marriage, contours of religious liberty you know yesterday i wrote a seminal piece and it seems to have really taken off um the sixth circuit saying that transgenderism is settled law and i'll, I'll put it up in the show notes and i'm warning you there's a revolting picture of a transgender guy it was not i did not do that it was our copy editor um I, I i just i can't eat every time i look at that i'm i'm so mad at him for putting that picture up but anyway i mean it kind of brings out the absurdity it shows a man with a beard with lipstick on oh oh my gosh i'm about to barf literally on the air but my point is my point with that is you are taking the most immutable laws of nature created by nature's god per the preamble of the declaration of independence the source of all unalienable rights, and you're creating an unalienable right to have a man force a state to treat him like a woman, impose that on the civil society, enshrine it into our law and constitution, and then say that that immutable law of nature is now immutable, is immutably settled into our law in the opposite way of its nature. Right, you cannot get this. Is the bottom the nadir of judicial supremacy, judicial tyranny? You cannot get worse than this. We start out with the the courts creating new rights, becoming the sole and final arbiter of every political issue. Now we've settled to a point where the courts could redefine nature and enshrine into our constitution, and people don't bat an eyelash. Except for Ed Wheeling at National Review, I don't know anyone else who even wrote about this case. Forcing a school district to quote, and they, they call the boy who's disturbed, you know, unfortunately with a mental disorder, they call him Jane Doe, the case of Jane Doe. You must treat the boy, they say, quote, 
like the girl she is. In any other day, the the attorney general would have marched out the um, U.S. marshals and just removed the guy from office. But we, we, we take this nonsense. So I used this article as kind of a form, this example as a form to explain my general philosophy for what, how the courts fit into the scheme of constitutional interpretation, how the other branches fit in, using this transgenderism as what I think should be the impetus for us to fight back. If not this, then what? And then, you know, kind of playing into the parts of my book, Stolen Sovereignty, by the way, great Christmas present, still available online at Amazon.com, Stolen Sovereignty, um, how to strip the courts of their power. I have eight different ways of doing that. Um, an article we posted a while back, I'm going to update it probably with 12 ways in the coming weeks. Weeks. There's more um, more, more uh, recourses as I kind of study this issue. But l- let's, let's go back to the foundation. Where does the foundation for constitutional interpretation of the courts come from, right? Where do the courts get this power? Starting with political science 101, American government 101, constitution 101, what, what, what was the system we adopted? The legislature passes a law. The executive branch, well, first the president or a governor at the state level has the determination whether to sign it. He could veto it. But once it's signed, then he has to... Um, enforce it or enforce previous laws that weren't on his watch. He has to execute them, enforce them, faithfully execute the laws passed by the legislature. What is the role of the judiciary? So any fifth grader should know it is not to interpret the constitution to serve as a veto on legislation passed by a legislature. It is to interpret the application of the statute in individual cases and controversies. So a court unlike the other two branches, doesn't take unilateral action. They can't just act. A case has to legitimately come before them with legitimate standing of a person who has grievances that need to be redressed under a specific statute, and they apply the statute. Like, bankruptcy law, how does it apply to this case? Um, that is their job. No, no one disagrees with that. Where the controversy came in, was with John Marshall and Marbury versus Madison. But everyone gets Marbury versus Madison wrong. Where, judi- where he introduced the concept of judicial review that the courts also have the right to look at constitutional interpretation. Now, Jefferson didn't like this, and a lot of people on our side who don't like judicial tyranny say John Mar- Marshall was wrong. What I want to explain is... I'm not siding with John Marshall, but I'm saying even if you go with his view, which seems to be the way the legal profession has gone, judicial review does not equal judicial supremacy or judicial exclusivity, that they are the sole and final arbiter of the Constitution. And in fact, it dictates the opposite, that certainly the other branches, certainly Congress, certainly the executive branch, certainly the state governments also have the right and duty to uphold the Constitution and interpret it the way they see fit. What Marshall was referring to, what Marshall was referring to, was when a state or, or the, the federal government passes a law that is manifestly against the plain meaning of the Constitution. So that doesn't apply to any of the cases we talk about nowadays, right? So to begin with, 
he was talking about interpreting the Constitution as it was conceived in 1789 or any subsequent amendments at the time they were adopted, right? So that automatically invalidates. I mean, this whole discussion, any other generation, they would have just thrown out the judiciary and stopped listening altogether. But I want to explain to you how how to fight back, even within the system, the legitimacy of the other branches to push back using their powers, even even when you know, the judiciary is using the proper constitutional interpretation. So he said, let's say, you know, let me just give an example. And he gives some of these examples. Let's say the state of Georgia says, I'm going to start putting tariffs on imports from states like Tennessee, right? Blatant violation of the constitution. That, that is a one manifest federal power. A state cannot tax interstate commerce. So, you know, and you have, you know, merchants from Tennessee come in. So they have legitimate standing, come to court, say, look, they're destroying my livelihood. So uh, what Marshall was saying is you can't tell me that the judges must look with tunnel vision at what the statute says. And all right, well, the application of the statute says this, so, you know, you, you're screwed. No. Ultimately, the law of the land is not the legislature. It's not the executive. It's certainly not the, the judiciary. It is the Constitution. And because judges swear an oath to uphold the Constitution, they cannot issue a judgment to an, you, meaning, when, when, when a case comes up that intersects with their legitimate powers, giving judgment to an individual case in controversy under the law, they have to look at the ultimate law of the land. I, they can't uphold, you know, a, a separation of powers violation, something that's blatantly, not, not, not kind of a, a middle ground, a gray area. There, there certainly are gray areas in constitutional law since our founding, but Right, you know, what are we supposed to do? But did John Marshall mean that only the judiciary has that right and they are the sole and final arbiter? No, because then, then they sit on top of the food chain. Right, meaning even if the courts, even if we lived in an era when the legal profession legitimately sought to interpret the Constitution as it was adopted, to say they have sole and exclusive and final rights over constitutional interpretation i mean that in itself is a huge threat to democracy we all have that responsibility certainly anyone who's in government who swears an oath but all of us have that responsibility i i'm gonna have our graphic artist um create a graphic just to depict this the system what we adopted what we didn't adopt it's you know the constitution stands above the pyramid and we're all below it not that the judiciary stands above it all john marshall meant was even the judiciary, because there were those at the time, and, and that's also a legitimate view. Thomas Jefferson clearly seemed to view it like as such, that no, the judiciary, because it's clearly the weakest branch that has neither force nor will, doesn't have the power to legislate, statutes, you know, power of the purse, executive, doesn't have police power, can't do anything, um, is, and it's unelected, it's only fair, it's not fair that they should have any say in constitutional interpretation. They're not elected. So they should just focus on the statute. There is no power of judicial review. John Marshall, on the other hand, he felt that, yes, the judicial branch is clearly the weakest branch of government. They don't have the power to execute. They don't have the power to appropriate funds, to legislate. Uh, but at the end of the day, they have the right and the responsibility to give judgment to individual cases that legitimately come before the court. And they swear an oath to uphold the same constitution as everyone. So he wasn't saying that the 
judiciary is supreme to the other branches, but the Constitution is supreme. So where they see an individual statute interfering with the relief that they need to grant to an individual plaintiff under the Constitution, as it was originally understood, they have the right, indeed the responsibility, to adhere to their conscience of oath to uphold the Constitution. So if Congress passes a, a law that you know, says anyone named Daniel Horowitz gets their land confiscated. I come to a court and say, look, you know, this is unfair. It's unconstitutional. You can't do this. Um, they, they can't just look with tunnel vision and say, oh, well, we're just going to apply the statute. Let's see if we read the statute correctly. Yes, we did. It says, are you Daniel Horowitz? Yes. Um, do you have land? Yes. Well, the statute said you have to forfeit it with, with no due process. You know, <laughs> they can't do that. But certainly, it didn't mean that they have exclusive, sole, final, arbiter status over constitutional interpretation. So, if the individual judgment would relate to broad political issues that weren't unique to an individual, so you have a state statute that governs election law, how many days of early voting, if any, we're going to have, whether we're going to allow same-day registration, what's a marriage, what type of regulations you could have an abortion. These are broad political issues that, to begin with, the courts were never supposed to get involved with, right? The case of Marbury versus Madison was very in the weeds dealing with one government official, had nothing to do with a broad public policy. But let's say they do get involved in that, and let's say they, the courts believe that something that a policy that Congress or a state legislature did and a governor signed into law is unconstitutional. Okay, that's fine. The other branches have a right to have their say as it relates to their powers. So let's plug this in to the equation of the transgender case. And let's see what a Trump administration and a Republican Congress could do to rein in nutty courts that are abusing their power, that are rewriting the Constitution, redefining the contours of unalienable rights, and actually rewriting natural law and settled laws of nature and science and culture civilization let's let's use the transgender case as a case study so basically what we have here is within the next three months the supreme court will be deciding the obergerfell equivalent of transgenderism it's not this case that we're talking about in the sixth circuit a similar case in the fourth circuit grim v gloucester county now anyone who understands anthony kennedy and his wacko opinion in obergerfell um, we know where he's going to come down. So even if somehow Trump would be able to, you know, appoint a, a fourth justice by then, you know, to fill Scalia's seat, they have at least five votes. So they're going to say transgenderism is the law of the land. So do we just throw up our hands and say, "Oh man, I don't know. We need to amend the uh, the Constitution to say that a man's a man, or we got to appoint better judges?" No. What happens? When a court issues a judgment, they don't have their own police force. Someone's got to execute it. Let's see how this plays out. You have a school district where a principal or a superintendent says, look, um, I'm just not doing this. A man's a man, a woman's a woman. I am not allowing a boy into a girl's bathroom. Well, the ACLU will take that individual to court and say, well, you know, Grim v. Gloucester County, we just ruled that someone has an unalienable right to force a state or a school district to allow them in the opposite gender's bathroom. The guy says no. 
the lower court will issue will apply precedent and then issue a bench warrant for the arrest of that principal for not following the order. Who's going to execute that bench warrant? The courts don't have their own police power. This would happen with Kim Davis. The U.S. Marshals, which are run by the executive branch, the Justice Department, would have to come out and serve that warrant, execute the warrant, arrest the guy, send him to jail. That's where Jeff Sessions comes in writes an opinion on behalf of Donald Trump, the executive branch, and says, no, we swore the same oath as you guys to uphold the Constitution. And in our Constitution, it says the opposite. It doesn't say that at all. And, you know, our history and tradition is the exact opposite. So we will not send out the marshals. Likewise, let's go to the the legislative branch of government. Congress could say, our job is to appropriate funds. We will not appropriate, we will prohibit the use of any funds to have the executive branch under the marshals, under any force, any tools of the Department of Justice to fulfill the judgment of Grim v. Gloucester County. Now, you didn't usurp the judiciary's power. They have the power to adjudicate original case or controversy. They did exactly that. In that case, for that individual. But in order to have their judgment be binding is more than just mere bloviating words and actually have the force of law, you need the other branches to agree when it intersects with their powers. Now, look, we all agree if there's maybe a kind of a murky area and a court gives a very scholarly opinion, it will resonate. And, you know, maybe the other branches will give deference, but they don't have to. And in a case and in an era where they have gone crazy, they have to say, no, we're not doing this. And likewise, the states, for their purposes. So let's say the marshals don't send, you know, come out to arrest someone for not a county clerk for, say, not writing a gay marriage license or to the school district for not promoting transgenderism. Well, what about the state troopers? The governor could say, we swore the same oath. And by the way, the states swear the most direct oath. The, the terminology of the oath is, I, I swear an oath to support the Constitution of the United States and the constitution of the state of wherever they are. So help me God. Unbelievable. So the oath that John Marshall said gives the judiciary a say in constitutional interpretation to begin with is built upon God and the constitution. Well, we know where God and the constitution stand on all these issues. So certainly the other branches have the right to check them. Now, the judiciary could come back and other people could file lawsuits and say, hey, you're not listening. And they could give their judgment again. And the executive branch and the states and the judi- and the legislature could use their powers to defy it again. Who is the ultimate arbiter? Who is that ultimate arbiter? There is the Constitution. The people. You all, public opinion ultimately will win the day, whoever has the better argument. But no branch inherently is stronger, and certainly not what everyone recognized was the weakest branch, the federal judiciary. Right. Madison in Federalist 49 said, The several departments being perfectly coordinate by the terms of their common commission, neither of them, it is evident, can pretend to an exclusive or superior right of settling the boundaries between their respective powers. You'll push back against each other. Likewise, Madison said in, um, I believe this was Federalist 49 as well, later on in the, in the essay, 
he said, who, who resolves this? You know, what happens when you have chaos without an appeal to the people themselves who, as the grantors of the commission, can alone declare its true meaning and enforce its observance? And then Madison went on to say in Federalist 51 that ultimately a dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control of government. Now, what is such a control over Congress? Um, Madison ultimately said in in his uh, writings, I believe um, it was a letter to Spencer Roan in 1821. Madison said that, you know, what is to control Congress when it exceeds its constitutional authority? Well, the answer is, quote, nothing within the pale of the Constitution, but sound argument and conciliatory expostulations addressed both to Congress and to the, their constituents. In other places, he talked about, um, I believe he wrote this in another essay uh, earlier on in his life, 1791. He, he wrote that, um, sorry, I'm just reading from my notes. The sovereignty of the people can only be protected, matched only by, quote, a circulation of newspapers through the entire body of the people. Public opinion. So, in other words, there is no finality. It's ultimately up to the people. So, I I think, you know, if the courts give a very scholarly opinion on a murky area of law that's kind of confusing, very complex, and they give a very good opinion, I think the people will say, you know what? The deference should be given to the courts. And the other branches will go along with it. But when the courts manifestly rape the Constitution beyond recognition, and everyone knows that, there is no shred of constitutionalism in their opinion, it is the right, it is the power, indeed it is the duty of the other branches to use their powers to simply ignore it. And they have that right. That's why the courts weren't given police powers. Who's going to decide? Let the people decide. If the people are upset with other branches for not enforcing transgenderism and they believe the courts are right, they'll take it out on them in elections, state elections, federal elections. That is the society. That is what it means to be a constitutional republic and not a judicial oligarchy. This is our constitution. It's of no man's private interpretation, certainly not the unelected judiciary. It's all of ours for keeping. This is where we are. We're running out of time here. I want you guys to look out for our holiday content. I'm going to have a piece in honor of Christmas and Hanukkah. Um, just talking about the foundation of religion as the as the you know really the founding of our country and and why it was so important to preserving liberty. Watch out for that piece. It's going to come out either Sunday Monday. Um, we're going to have a lot of other stuff coming on for the new year. Until then, Merry Christmas to y'all. Happy Hanukkah. Enjoy your new year. We'll be back next week. God bless. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.